Um, no, it was a beautiful lunch, yeah. so thank you. And no worries. A wide range of fish dishes that, that well, you've got on the menu. It sort, of, it sort of has to be like that, being the yeah. Atlantic, you know. Well, so, absolutely. Yeah. We've got a uh, good seafood supply, so they just hook us up with all the all the best stuff we can get, or they can get. So it's from all over, is that right? It's, it's from all over. A lot of farm, a lot of wild, um, and just all, from all over the country. Some yeah. of it from New Zealand. Uh, the, like the John... <laughs> Picked up on the accent. <laughs> <laughs> well, the John Dory mostly comes from New Zealand, okay. if it's not local. And if we have Hapukura or Blue Eye on the menu, that sometimes comes from over there as yeah. well. So. I was saying to my um, friend who came for lunch that um, we have bluff oysters, and um, but they don't really export them over here. They're no, the, we can't get them. They're the best oysters ever. Although those Tasmanian <coughs> oysters are really delicious. Yeah. But there's something about bluff oysters... Um, it's so cold and wild down the bottom of the South Island. There must yeah. be something to do with the. I reckon you can taste that in an oyster as well. Like when yeah. you get the rock oysters from an estuary, like they're just they're very they're gentle in the mouth and they're minerally, and you can't taste that hard hitting ocean like yeah. you get from Tassie ones or South Australia to an extent. But the Tassie ones are real. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, they're, yeah, they no, they're, like they're amazing. So mouth. it's probably similar because Tasmania yeah, and New Zealand probably quite similar. But yeah. Yeah. Um, and I was intrigued because you, you grew up in Lake Central. Yeah, um, yeah. So that would be very fish-oriented. Oh, uh, yeah, it's big big fish down there. Like, um, I sort of grew up sort of fishing with my mates and, I don't know, out in the tinnies every weekend and after school. But my sister's got a restaurant down there, so I started my apprenticeship with her and her partner used to be a um, commercial fisherman deckhand, so... We, like, we used to trade beer for fish for the restaurant. So yeah, we, nice. <laughs> we just get these fish bins of like school whiting, calamari, like, I don't know, little red mullets. All this just like bycatch that they didn't have like a full fish bin to send to market. So we'd get that in and just clean it all up and use it on the restaurant menu. So I've yeah. sort of grown up with it in a, in a big way. It feels like that's quite unusual, though, in Australian towns. It's quite often when um, my partner and I are around, like, visiting around, you want to get local fish, and sometimes it seems to be really hard to... Possible. Yeah. It's impossible. Like, um, that's all, and it's still today, like, there's a small co-op shop in Lakes, but all of it goes to Sydney or Melbourne, straight to the market. It goes straight on a truck, you don't even see it. And even, like, the commercial fishing boats are getting fitted with cameras these days, so if you wanted to do a dodgy like that can't do it yeah like, it's just impossible the fishers, fisheries will be down there and they'll just jump straight on you you can't you can't trade or that's the thing so I reckon there's the nothing boat. better than being in the place and eating it's something they've caught so untrue yeah I <laughs> like, know even when I was a little bit older me and my mates used to go whiting fishing and you can up a lake a little bit so beautiful King George whiting every 12 we used to like cook we used to take them to the restaurant as well and like get some money for them or get a couple of beers for them or something like that when we um you know after a long days like we had fun fishing but you know yeah, that's, that's right. how hard it is to get like the fish from that area around yeah, there. it's yeah. crazy it's really crazy so i was a bit intrigued because i spoke to hayden mcmillan over at etta dining in brunswick i don't know if you know, really know them but um so he's a new zealander that's come over um to melbourne and he was at the roving marrow and now he's they've opened up their own place etta yeah he was saying he doesn't like to put fish on the menu because he thinks that most fish are unsustainable and that we're going to get to a time when there's just not going to be any fish what what is well, that do you think that as well or is that a he's probably got a point there to an extent like you know, when you use farm fish, you, you expect that to be sustainable, but 
that has sort of impacts on the environment that it's get, that it gets farmed in, like mm. the whole salmon story, how it wrecks the seabed underneath it. And there was once where the uh, the kingfish escaped, and that was supposed to be a detriment to all the other fish around it, because like forty thousand kingfish escaped from a from a net. So, look, farming is supposed to be the sustainable way, but um, if you're getting a wild catch product, the fisheries have pretty strict quotas these days, and even with like an industry like the scallop industry, I remember um, back when I was growing up, they stopped farming, oh, stopped dredging the scallops in um, Bass Strait, so, and they used to come into lakes. Um, so that was totally banned, but you look at it now, and it's probably 15, 20 years later or something, the industry's recovered really well, and they're starting to give you patches of uh, seabed where you can uh, right. get the scallops again. So. I think the fisheries are getting more strict in their quota and fishing systems that you can there's a place for it I think but it's never going to be perfect but like anything wild catch and you take it from the environment it's probably never going to be perfect but I think it's getting managed better okay. and look who knows if it'll ever run out yeah and you know touch wood doesn't because they're supposed to be managing it properly but I think you know if you go through the correct channels buy from the market don't get it off the back of a truck somewhere and you know, don't buy it off you. Buy it off some local fisherman like I used to. <laughs> An exchange for beer. Yeah, 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 yeah. But you know, that's the thing. If if you follow sort of the right rules, I think it's sustainable, and especially with, with a good mix of farm and wild products. So, yeah. yeah. And the other aspect of that was that um, it's come up a lot recently um, in my chats to chefs about how um, a lot of the younger generation coming through are not willing to do more than the, the session hours, and you know, these big pay. Um, whatever yeah and so that means that you can't teach all of the skills that perhaps used to be taught because you just don't have the time to devote to um, that are you getting in whole fish and filleting them or because I know a lot of restaurants I mean I would assume because it's a seafood restaurant but I know lots of restaurants just can't afford to do that no we've got a fishmonger who works downstairs so we'll get say 70% in whole some in fillets um it's purely the fact we have we have whole fish on the menu. Um, whole fish lasts longer as well. So if we buy in beautiful fresh caught that day whole fish and treat it really well in in house, we'll get a much better shelf life out of it. Not that we've got fish hanging around, but <laughs> sometimes sometimes you need the ability to hold fish for a while. Yeah. Um, some fish, yes, we buy in fillets, and just because we use so a bigger volume of fish, like over a weekend, we'll we'll have probably. 100 to 120 portions of each uh, main course fish on hand so it's a lot of fish when it you do is, it but yeah. I've got a fishmonger working five days a week so it's a full-time job for one person yeah but when it comes to training for that I've got there's a in our oyster bar section we've got probably four or five people working there and they'll work with the fishmonger they'll do like the crustacean prep and the oyster opening um, and the prawn peeling so it's sort of like the apprenticeship in that fishmonger section while he watches the while they watch the fishmonger work. So there, there is time for learning in it in our kitchen. And okay, it's, it, good. it's pretty good. But um, saying that, you're right. With the hours available, you you do have to watch how much the especially the apprentices work as well. Yeah. Like some of the senior guys, they'll they'll walk work longer and harder because I don't know they they're a little bit they're from that older school 
sort of generation. Not that they're forced upon, but you know they'll just come in earlier, leave well, later. Well, they probably and, just maybe enjoy it, and it's just yeah. what they do. And, and you'll find that with the apprentices and um, younger guys too. If they want to learn a day on fish, I say, yeah, yes, learn it. But sometimes I'll come in on a day off just to learn sort of the art of it, which yeah. is really good. It's good that they got the opportunity as well. Yeah, well, I but, suppose it's like when you're studying anything, there are aspects where you've got to go over the, yeah. the allocated time to you can't get, get paid for everything you can't get yeah. paid for everything no well, that's I've, right. I've done it everyone's done it of you know course. it's just it's just what you do yeah if you want to learn something new you're going to have to chase it yeah to an extent so i mean just thinking about all that variety of fish on your menu are you going for um when you're building a menu profile like the one that you've got on yeah. do you go for uh, is it seasonal or is it flavor or what what do you build on? A little bit of both, you know. We try and have different cooking methods in our fish, like we've got raw, steamed, roasted. Um, that's about it. But <laughs> like grilled. But um, and then the garnish, we try and keep seasonal. There's there's a certain amount of fish, like there's the wild caught stuff, which you have to be careful when you put it on. Like winter's the best for most wild caught fish. Um, and then in those calmer months, you'll get the sort of inland fish like uh, whiting and garfish and stuff like that. So autumn's a good time for that. But we build it around stuff that we can put on, like the farm stuff. So I think at the main course portions of fish, we've got four farms and one wild on. No, two wild on. So maybe three and two. So you have to have that balance. Yeah. So I build the menu around the protein, but all the garnish around it becomes seasonal. Yeah. So you had the kingfish today which isn't really seasonal. You can get that stuff any time of the year, but maybe something like the John Dory we've got in our menu, which is with a asparagus sort of regular risotto. So that'll go for two months or three months or something, as long as the asparagus is around. Then we'll just change out the garnish and probably use John Dory again because it's a real crowd pleaser and, you know, it's it's not endangered and we can get a good supply of it. And that's the stuff that comes from New Zealand. And I don't know, we've... we've it's a bit of a crowd pleaser as well, so yeah, yeah. we never want to really take that off. The Aura King Salmon stays on because it's a farm product, and that was here before I was here, so that we just sort of keep that on. And people, the guests here come to expect it to be on the menu, and we've got a really good following from it. But other than that, it sort of stays a little bit, you know, giggly, you know. And we use stuff in the fish and chip shop and stuff on our oyster bar menu and the uh, raw menu to correlate with those main courses. So say we've got barramundi on in the restaurant, we'll do you know, the nice centre cut pieces of barramundi and then we use the wings and the tail pieces in the fish and chip shop. So mm. you get that same quality, but we use the like secondary cuts maybe in the fish and chip shop or yeah. you know, we'll use a, a cheaper cut of fish maybe in the oyster bar to give it that different price point towards the restaurant. So that's one of the reasons around that. But yeah, writing a menu, and especially here, it's just it's tough sometimes to get a great snapshot of Australian seafood, but be a little bit different in all your preparations and mm. methods at the same time. So, and it's and it's such an institution. Well, you know, in terms of where you are yeah. and and, and, you, and the public that are coming here, um, how often do you change the menu, or do you seasonally-ish? Yeah. You know, so a couple of weeks ago we changed every main course we had on, except for the fish and chips, which don't change, um, and then. Next week we'll be changing like 50% of entrees and the sides. So the first menu change was bang on spring and then the next one is sort of you know, a little bit later in the spring. But then after we change that we'll go, um, we'll be looking at a summer change as well. So 
not bang on the change of the month but or the change of the season but just sort of progressively and it's we find that it's a less of an impact on the kitchen as a you know as a big working team and yeah it's easier to introduce to waiters you know they'll they have to get their knowledge of the dishes so they can sell them and know what they know what they're selling it's just an easier transition i think mm. you know, just to do it gradually and um and just in terms of those all those different flavors i was thinking um before how number one can anyone be a chef and, and how there's so much creativity involved but there's so much you must have like this library in your head or your sensory system of all these different flavors that you use yeah. to it, it's funny it's just like, i'm sort of forgetting a little bit yeah, I'm yeah, not yeah, forgetting, yeah, like, yeah when i was in my 20s like i'm only i'm turning 34 this year but when i was like 22 23 i thought oh, i don't need to write anything down blah 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 i'll be fine yeah i'm getting older i'm like what did i put in that back yeah, in the yeah. day like what was i doing then so I've started writing a lot more down these days, but yes, things come back to you. And say you use salmon or something, you'll start thinking, "Ah, oh, what was I doing back back then when I was using salmon? Or what did this guy teach me when I was doing salmon? And what we were doing at this restaurant?" So it all sort of starts coming flooding back when you. Like sometimes you just lay in bed at night and just go salmon, 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 salmon. For an example, you just get thinking of things that you used to do and new ideas, and maybe you go out for dinner at one of the many places in Melbourne or. You know, wherever, and you get you steal ideas from people. You know, I don't think anyone's putting their hand up and go, "I'm totally independent." Everything's borrowed, used, redone. You know, so I think it's one of those rare restaurants that you're just totally original. I think, yeah. Um, and I think everyone's pretty open to that, so it's good. That's right. Because yeah. I think, from a dining point of view, well, when, from an eating point of view, yeah. um, a lot of our enjoyment from eating comes from. Um, when it unleashes a, a memory or a, um, you know that kind of from a from a, an aroma or a flavour. Yeah. So, for example, on the um, we had the the four different little um, raw taste, raw taste, yeah. and on the salmon, there's like miso. It, there's like a, it's a burnt spring onion and ginger relish. Got butter in it because it was because nah. it, there's a like I was like what <laughs> that, is that the... flavour and it felt really. Um, it was like a really homely kind of feel, and then he was like, "Oh no, it's spring onion and miso." And I was thinking, "What?" Is, but there's a salmon's from New Zealand, maybe that's. Oh, maybe <laughs> I know that flavour. <laughs> no, so that's the kingora salmon, and that's one of the examples of using the nice centre cuts for the main course portions, and then we use the belly for the sashimi, which is just like fifty percent plus fat. So that could be the texture you're getting. Yeah, in your so mouth. maybe in the in the yeah, and that's um, the miso and so on. It's, it almost tasted spicy to me. It was almost like shortbready kind of. Yeah, right. It, it's super fatty. It's so super fatty. Yeah, okay, that, nice. You know, that's why we have such a sharp dressing on it. So it's sort of counterbalance. Oh, it's delicious. Yeah. yeah. And the um the other white fish in the coconut milk. Uh, the snapper. Yeah. yeah. That's good, isn't it? It's so fresh and like it's got that fatty fattiness of the coconut milk and yeah. the avocado, but it's so. Oh yeah. It's just like any bowl. Thai curry or something. That's right. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but what's the name of that? What is the name of the fish done in the? Um, uh, what is that? What is that? It's some. Uh, it's a Peruvian, isn't it? Uh, I think I can't remember what it's yeah. called. Interesting. But so we've sort of done that, but we put a sort of Thai twist on. I think putting the kaffir lime in there. Mm. As soon as I get kaffir lime, I think of Thailand. And, yeah. And I think that's the good thing about. That's where I don't mind just throwing out the rule book in terms of which cuisine that's I do. Right. Like, that's what I mean too. You must have this repertoire of flavours that you know what other flavours would go with the other one. So yeah. you don't need to have had that combination to know that these two would go together. Yeah, well, to me, that's like a sort of classic fresh 
curry flavour, but we've just taken it out of there and put it on raw fish, and I think yeah. that works really great. But that's the thing with raw fish, it'll take on any flavour you want it to. It's just like a blank canvas, right? So yeah. you can just go nuts with it, yeah, which is awesome. great. Yeah. And so in terms of starting off and, um, and catching fish and, and whatever, and, um, and now you're in um, a really big seafood restaurant, you've had, <laughs> you've, no, you've had a really um, a great trajectory in terms of being at Stoke House and, and different ones along the yeah. way. And so you were head chef at Stoke House. Uh, I, was, I was sous chef upstairs until my eighth year, I think, and then I spent two years downstairs and I opened that as head chef. Yeah. And then we burnt it down and did the pop-up and went to the city all that sort of yeah. jazz. and. After that, I just took a couple of years off, but the Stokehouse was just like a, a real breeding ground for really great chefs, and yeah. you know there was great things to learn, and the the floor team was really great, and the management team, you know Frank and John for I only worked with John for you know my first year there probably, but Frank was always really great. Yeah. It's really good working there. And just the difference though between being a sous chef to a head chef to an executive chef. Yeah. Um, and I and you know, I was asking you before about can anyone be a chef? It's not just that creative side of things, is it? You need to be able to once you get into those upper roles, you really have to manage people and money and yeah. and, and um and have a really broader. Are you still are you still on the on the no, pants? I'm in there a fair bit. Yeah. Like, I'm, if I'm here and I'm. You know, available on there every service. Yeah. Which is maybe Jesus. <laughs> um, which is probably let's say I mean, five to eight services a week. I'm, yeah. I'm in the kitchen. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, other than that, you know, there is the financial meetings and stuff you go to, but you learn that from I think sure there's chef to party to sous chef level. You learn how to manage your your costs by costing dishes and then go on to ordering and then the wastage that comes with over ordering and that's sort of a natural progression but when you get to people like people's the hardest thing and I think a lot of people will agree like staff are so hard to find good ones anyway and then to keep them is even harder like if you can keep a chef for three years I think you're doing pretty bloody good one year would be uh, one year would be about average you know if they're, if they're a good one but if you can keep on for three years, it's worth about six in the bank, I reckon. Yeah, that's what I keep hearing is that there is... Um, Thanks very much. Yeah, and that, that, that they almost have the, the younger ones, the, 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 not say the lower <laughs> levels, but the younger ones coming in and kind of can pick and choose a bit. And, oh, 100%. Whereas you want to keep your team. Yeah. You know, you, you're going... It, it costs money to train them, but also you want a yeah. team that gels and works together. And yeah, so. so in this team I've got now, this is probably the biggest venue I've worked. Like, Stokehouse is pretty small in comparison to this but um, I've, I've brought my sous chef from Stokehouse and old chef to party which was sous chef at Stokehouse and because it's so big and sort of not the salary caps but so big but you need a lot of managers in the place I was lucky enough to bring two of my really trusted people with me and that's that stands for a, a lot when you've worked with someone for 10 or 12 years yeah and definitely. then they come over and they just know how you operate and we all know each, how each other operate so it's good you've got eyes everywhere and hopefully we've got the sort of same training methods the similar palettes and we can sort of produce the same stuff if one of us isn't in the building which which happens a lot so yeah it's good but these like to get sponsorships through is really good and if you can snag one of them for a few years, that's good. Yeah. Then hopefully by that time they're not sick of you and they'll stay with you. <laughs> but, you know, like Australian people are getting harder and harder to get in the kitchen. Yeah. I think I got, um, I got, 
just my two sous chefs are, or my head chef and my sous chef are Australian and then everyone else is international out of yeah. about 30 people in the kitchen it's just crazy yeah it's so hard to get smaller teams are not easier they're like if you can get three or four people or five people who have worked together and are just like gelling together that whole time I think you'll get more staff retention out of them but in a big team especially sort of one drops off another one sort of comes back well that's right but if they stay for a while there's sort of room for growth in the kitchen and and they can really flourish in a few years so so um a new person coming into your team what's the most important thing they need to be aware of or that you would want that you would make them aware of Sometimes you can get lost in a big place, so try and find someone to buddy up with. Like we always start people, uh, unless they're at a senior level, we always start them in the oyster bar or the uh, cold larder section, which they've always got to buddy with. And that's one of the ways we can sort of nurture them into the business, I think. And for the first probably three or four months, they'll just like be spun out by, like, by the sheer volume of people we do, the amount of prep that gets done through there. And, just the chaos of service, you know, especially if they're just like, they're pretty green coming out of trade school or something like that. But um, we, around all the chaos, if they've got one person that they're working close with and they've got a real, sounds funny, buddy system going with them, they should be fine, you know. And got, got a lot of um, Mandarin-speaking people, that could be from Taiwan or China or whatever. But um, and it's sort of, might sound a little bit bad, but I try and put someone who speaks Mandarin with another Mandarin speaker and they'll train them in a different language. Yeah. They always speak English during service, but if you can, and, and the Italians I put together, and it sounds a little bit maybe racist, but I don't think it is. I think it's good for the training and, yeah. you know, to feel comfortable in the kitchen as well, just to have someone to talk to in their own language, and it's, it's good. Like we, all, we all talk to each other in English in the kitchen, but... You know, to have that one-on-one training, say they're downstairs, out the back, you know, prepping away, or Absolutely. you know, they go go to empty the bins or something like that. They just have a chat and yeah. blah blah blah. So that's yeah. uh, yeah. good. No, it's important. Yeah. And um, and what would you tell your younger self, or maybe um, a younger chef who is getting into the industry these days? What would your advice be? I don't know. Maybe with the chef shortage around, like sometimes, sometimes I've feel like you know I've progressed a little bit too fast so maybe just just learn everything take it slow you know and you know stay at that level where you can for a, for a longer time you know like I, I I think I'm in the position I am today because I've worked very hard to get here but at the same time um, I wish I'd sort of stayed back and learned a few more things off other people in the industry, maybe worked in a few more places in the like around the country or even around the world. Just in my personal experience, like I, I did ten years at Stokehouse, which I feel like I travelled around the world and worked with, you know, amazing people, but I didn't really sample too many other pieces of the pie. Yeah. But you know, learn as much as you can and keep on learning. Like you never stop learning. I keep learning every day, so yeah, that's about it. Learn, learn, learn. Yeah, thank you. Is that it? Yeah. I need a photo.